0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Hi, welcome everybody to uh, the September installment of our virtual Southern California Stem Cell Consortium. Uh, As you know, for probably the past 15 years, we've been having these sessions uh, on the second Thursday morning of every month at 930 Pacific time. And, uh, with almost never, ever missing a Thursday, we had a little bit of a stutter step for obvious reasons because of the pandemic. But, uh, thanks to some heroic efforts from Jake and Marcy and Tija, we are actually back. Not exactly live, but at least in real time, uh, again, with the Southern California Stem Cell Consortium, bringing what we think is really the, uh, the, the, the cutting-edge uh, research in the field of stem cell biology construed extremely broadly. Uh, everything from regenerative medicine to neuro-oncology, developmental biology, our, our definition of stem cell biology is exceedingly broad. And uh, we've even been a little creative uh, with this uh, reinstitution of the consortium. And while we're doing this virtually, uh, we thought that this would be a great opportunity every month to highlight the hottest papers coming out in the field, regardless of where the speaker comes from. that's the the one silver lining to the fact that we can't all meet together at the Sanford consortium building. Now we do have the opportunity to get great speakers shortly after their hot papers appear and present to us from around the world. And, uh, t- today's speaker is, is a great example of that. Uh, Kevin Petraka is presenting from, uh, presenting from McGill. So from, uh, from Quebec. And now I'm going to turn it over to, uh, to, to Kevin Petrega, who actually um, is speaking about very important developmental aspects in the field of cancer. And I think he'd be the first to admit that, that the, the great insights that he will bring to bear on cancer are one of the beneficiaries of the stem cell field. So Kevin did his uh, MD and PhD at McGill, also his neurosurgical training, and uh, is now chief of the Department of Neurosurgery at McGill and the William Feindel Chair of Neurooncology. oncology um, he, he won, in 2017, the Quebec Science Discovery of the Year Award, and one interesting thing that I, I will embarrass him that I found in his CV that was interesting is that he was uh, named Personality of the Year in Science in 2015 by La Presse. So I I, I, I think that we feel honored to have such a, such a great personality, giving us a, a very intriguing findings that were recently published in Nature. And with that,
1: I'll turn it over to Kevin. Thank you very much, Evan. It's a uh, it's a real pleasure to be here today, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the invitation to share um, some of the work that we've been, uh, doing over really this, this project was initiated in 2016 with the, uh, advent of single cell, uh, transcriptomic profiling approaches. And, um, and I'm going to share some of that work with you. And so my, my, um, I'm a neurosurgical oncologist. I take care of patients with uh, brain cancers, gliomas in particular, and our, uh, Successes uh, in the past have been few and far between. Um, And one of the challenges that uh, we all know about in this field is owing to the heterogeneity of the cancer, meaning one cancer is different from another. And we wanted to explore that more uh, to try to understand uh, really the organization of this cancer at at multiple levels. And so with that, I'll I'll begin. Okay, so um, today I'll be talking about isocitrate dehydrogenase wild type glioblastoma Uh, Its counterpart is IDH mutant glioma. It's a completely different disease uh, with different profiles. Um, So today we'll be focusing on uh, primary glioblastoma, uh, which is the most common and aggressive brain cancer. Um, Our treatments are limited and our outcomes remain very, very poor. Um, Patients are treated with a combination of surgery, radiotherapy, and chemotherapy, Uh, Over the last uh, 30 or 40 uh, decades, as operative techniques have improved, the outcomes uh, owing to surgery have improved. Radiotherapy has improved as well over the last 34 years with the development of technologies. Um, And our chemotherapy approaches, though, unfortunately, have remained quite stagnant. Uh, Prior to the early 2000s, there really were no proven chemotherapies to help patients with this disease. In the early 2000s, with testing of a methylating agent called temozolamide, large-scale trials, uh, randomized phase 3 trials were were, were developed and completed, and they showed a very, very small overall survival advantage in a cohort of patients. We've learned over time that the patients who actually benefit from this uh, treatment are ones with MGMT promoter hypermethylation. Uh, Otherwise, uh, it remains... uh, a very difficult uh, to treat disease with no uh, new ke- chemotherapies and certainly nothing really in even phase three trials to date. The overall survival remains at around two years. When we look at an MRI, this is a collection of, of, of different patients with IDH wild-type gliomas, we can appreciate uh, you know, eight tumors with eight very different appearances. Um, some tumors have necrosis in the center of the tumor, some don't. Some have inflammation, some don't. Uh, Some arise superficially in the cortex, some are quite deep. Uh, They can be really involved in frontal temporal parietal occipital lobes. Uh, So we appreciate the differences. And this even harkens back to the neuropathological naming of this tumor, at least the previous, which was glioblastoma multiforme, meaning multiple forms or uh, heterogeneity. And so Today, when we think about heterogeneity, we think of at least two types, Uh, at least at the macroscopic level. We think of intertumoral heterogeneity, which is one patient's tumor is different from another patient's tumor. And we think about intratumoral heterogeneity, meaning different uh, spatial or structural um, or genomic or molecular uh, um, regions or cells within each patient's tumor. Intertumoral heterogeneity has been studied quite well for this disease by the cancer genome atlas. We've known for over 10 years that this disease can really be classified into three main types if you sequence cells together, meaning bulk sequencing. So for this study, um, around 400 patients were included. Uh, One cubic centimeter of tissue was uh, digested and analyzed as representing the entire tumor and classification schemes were used to um, separate these patients into four types uh, that were given the names mesenchymal, classical, neural, and proneural. Revised classifications have essentially eliminated the neural uh, component and called it more of a um, contribution from normal tissue. So today, uh, most would say that there are really three TCGA classifications, classical, mesenchymal, and proneural, and they have very, very characteristic mutations or copy number changes, either amplifications or deletions. When these data sets are clinically annotated, uh, one can appreciate there's actually no difference in response to treatments or overall survivals between any of three these uh, three subtypes. Taking this a little bit further, Um, This is a very, very important study from the Tavare group where they use the same approach, but instead of just comparing patients, they compare different regions of each patient. And so you can see over here from one particular patient, four different tumoral regions were sampled and analyzed in the same way. And some patients for multiple types only exhibited one of the TCGA classifications, for example, classical or mesenchymal or mesenchymal. But for some patients, they showed multiple subtypes. So classical and neural or mesenchymal and proneural. And this was really one of the first demonstrations of intratumoral heterogeneity. So multiple TCGA subtypes within one patient. Moving along, um, to this is a publication from Science in 2014. Um, This is from the uh, Bradley Bernstein, Mario Suva, Regev, and Shalik group at uh, Harvard, MIT. Uh, They showed using nuclear uh, single-cell sequencing, so uh, mRNA is captured from the nucleus, in around 800 cells that single cells within each patient's tumor can actually be classified according to a TCGA subtype. So not only large pieces of tissue could fit those classification schemes, but even single cells. And so these heat maps basically show that for this patient here, MGH patient number 26, the majority of the cells showed a pro-neural phenotype and the remainder were mainly classical, whereas MGH 28 was almost entirely mesenchymal and so on. And so this was the first example of um, intratumoral heterogeneity at the single cell level. And this was very, very intriguing to us. And we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into what this meant. And so we uh, embarked on a very similar type of study to the previous. Um, we used the droplet sequencing technique. So our sequencing was done on uh, from the cytoplasm as opposed to the nucleus and we did it on a large number of patients. And we basically followed two different schemes. The first was to enrich for glioma stem cells as we thought this was gonna be uh, an important contributor to this disease. And it was something that we wanted to focus our attention on. And so basically cells were uh, harvested directly from the operating room. Um, They were placed in uh, restricted media and grown in essentially spheres for seven days and submitted for single cell RNA sequencing. And another uh, cohort of patients was basically digesting the tissue. Sometimes we would uh, separate cells, but most of the time we would not sort out cells and submit the entire uh, population of cells for single cell sequencing. And so uh, this is what it looks like uh, on basically a, a TSNE clustering algorithm. Uh, and I'll take you through this. The BT stands for brain tumor. Uh, the number just stands for the, the patient number in our uh, data bank. So basically, um, you know, in 2016, we were at 409 patients. GSC stands for the patients uh, that had their uh, cells placed in cultures, so uh, progenitor or stem cell enriched cultures, which were sequenced. And those with a W or a plus W, where the patients had the entire tumor or whole tumor analyzed. And so a couple things are important. First, Uh, we see that um, all patients have cells that will contribute to this cluster here that's uh, delineated by the uh, dotted uh, circle and another cluster here. And when we analyze the signatures for those cells, we realize that they are normal cells, either of oligodendrocytic, myeloid, or endothelial origin. So all patients have these cells uh, within their tumors and their their signatures uh, cross over one another. On the other hand, um, each tumor, actually uh, clusters together, but distinctly or separately from each patient's, each other's patients, which is a perfect example of intertumoral heterogeneity. One tumor is not lining up with the other, and this is driven by their chromosomal aberrations. Of note, if you look at the bottom right here, you'll appreciate that the stem cells of a patient will line up uh, very well in cluster in proximity to the whole tumor analysis, as one would expect. Looking at these chromosomal anomalies in more detail, uh, this with a certain degree of confidence, uh, and we think nowadays that this is actually with high confidence, we can assess uh, large uh, chromosomal anomalies from the mRNA. Uh, And so basically um, this box on the top are showing you all the normal cells, meaning that with this technique, we do not identify any large scale chromosomal variants, whereas within the tumor cells we do Um, all, basically all cells from all patients share a chromosome 7 amplification to one degree or another. They all share a chromosome 10 deletion with one degree or another of strength. And then they have disparate uh, CNAs within them. And what's interesting is that each tumor by and large shows multiple clones. And that number is either one to three with two and three being the average. So as another indicator of heterogeneity within the cancer, we realized that there are different uh, uh, different clones that share uh, different uh, C- CNAs within each tumor. Looking at those clones in a little bit more detail, uh, we can appreciate, going back to the TCGA, that um, clones, even within one clone, will have multiple TCGA subtypes. And, and, and this is really, really important to, to, to show that in fact, the TCGA classification is not a clonal classification and that heterogeneity can arrive from multiple uh, avenues within each tumor. And I'll show you what we think is a big contributor to that um, heterogeneity. And so first, the first analysis we did was what we thought was going to be the simplest was just taking the glioma stem cells or enriched stem cells and analyzing, analyzing their signatures. And we noticed something right away so basically these columns are the patients that had just their glioma stem cells sequenced. And we could you can see how the cells line up uh, with their different signatures. And basically they could be clustered into three groups. One that expressed markers of uh, neuronal lineage. So CD24, double cortin, for example. And so all stem cells expressed some, all, all uh, cell cultures uh, had some cells within them that had a neuronal signature. On the other hand, There was a, each patient's uh, stem cells had a a population of cells that were expressing markers of a glial lineage, for example, Vimentin, GFAP, CD44. And in the middle, somewhere in between the two, were cells expressing markers that were consistent with stem cells or progenitor cells, Olig2, Sox2, uh, MASH, and Sox4. And so this suggested very, very strongly that within the stem cell population, at least at seven days in culture... Um, cells were already sh- showing a, 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 a normal neural developmental pattern, meaning expressing um, signatures that were consistent with resident cells of the brain. In this case, neurons, glial cells, and progenitor cells. And so we wanted to look at this uh, in a, a little bit more deeply, and this is the whole tumor analysis. And basically, this is a non-negative matrix factorization with uh, really essentially an unbiased analysis And you can see that there were certain signatures that were consistent within different cell types. And so the largest population here, labeled G1 uh, and G2, were basically a dividing population that underneath their cell cycle score expressed progenitor genes. There was a cluster of cells expressing oligodendrocyte-like cancer cells. There was another population expressing neuronal-like cancer cells. mesenchymal-like cancer cells, although we don't really know what a mesenchymal means, and then astrocyte-like cancer cells. There was a last population that was really expressing signatures of hypoxia. And the, the, the graph on the right, the plot on the right is essentially, right, is essentially to show that all patients had cells representing that, that had multiple cell types within each cancer. And this was quite uniform across every single patient. And so what this suggested was that the cancer was forming and had oncogenic drivers, but that at some level, there was a platform or a program where there was a, where there was a maintenance of the cells from which these cancer cells were originally derived. And the suspicion here would be that um, since we were giving, we were identifying three lineages and progenitor cells or stem-like cells within the cancer, that they were somehow being, the cancer was originating in a progenitor or stem-like cell. To prove this, or to dig a little bit deeper to see if that was actually true, we needed a comparison. And so in 2016, 2017, there were actually no single cell RNA data sets of the brain, adult brain. And in particular, we were interested in identifying or making comparisons to stem cells. And so our our approach was to actually identify um, or to try to capture the transcriptome of stem cells, uh, human stem cells, so that we could do sequencing, but that also the um, patients or the specimens would include progenitor cells. That's not a simple thing to do, but we moved towards looking at the fetal brain because that was, uh, we knew um, that was going to be uh, a time point where we would be able to capture a significant portion of progenitor or stem cells. And so we did that. And what you're seeing here is basically data from 2017, where we um, took we took two approaches, actually. One was to just take the entire brain specimen and analyze the, the transcriptomes of the cells. And another approach was, since we were looking for progenitors, was to um, enrich for CD133 expressing cells. Essentially, they overlap. Um, they, 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 we, we do, in fact, with CD133, have a, an enrichment of progenitor-like cells uh, and an exclusion of um, mature um, neurons. But taking you through this, I just want to point out a couple important aspects, and here are some uh, markers in particular. Um, but this group right here, uh, these are differentiated astrocytes. Uh, these are radioglial cells, and we see a large contribution of cells that match that, and we have a uh, the TRGs and the URG is really an unidentified uh, radioglial cell population, meaning it, it shares radioglial signatures, but has never really been described in the past. And importantly, we identified this cluster that at the time we were calling a glial progenitor cell. Um, its transcriptome had never really been um, demonstrated in the past and still even uh, following the work of uh, the Krikstein group, it still hasn't Um, But I'll I'll show you what it expresses over here. It expresses some MASH, Um, there are some dividing cells within it. It expresses APOD, it expresses other markers of uh, early neural lineage like Olig2 and PDGFRA. And so our point was we wanted to understand how the cells within the cancer actually match or line up with um, the developing brain of a human. And so um, and this is what that data looks like. Uh, panel A on the top is basically a diffusion plot. Uh, it's a little bit small on this graph. I apologize, but I'll, I'll take you through it slowly. There are basically three dimensions to this graph. Uh, and the, the cells have been labeled um, with a color. And in, in here, essentially, every cell is plotted. So overall, for the fetal data set, we analyzed around 22,000 cells. And we can, based on their signatures, um, put them into certain cell type classifications. So the top of the pyramid here are what we call the glial progenitor cells. Going towards the right are oligolineage cells. Um, here, these are astrocyte-like cells. Um, this orange cluster over here, these we call them truncated radial glial cells. Um, and, and I'll explain why these are included and why they don't exactly match up with a glial progenitor cell. And then over here in this dimension are our neuronal cells. And if you just shift over here, you can see um, how they really, they're the heat maps of these and the genes that we use to uh, call the cells. And so the, the next step, panel B, was really the work of a uh, a neurosurgery resident who is an engineer and a computational biologist, as well as name is Charles Couturier who um, thought that uh, an an approach to call the cells in the cancer would be able to, almost like a nearest neighbor analysis, just take each cancer cell and find its nearest comparison within the developing brain. And when you do that, you realize that the actual program of the cell matches very, very uh, well with the cells of the developing brain, meaning there are a population of cells That um, express uh, signatures that are very uh, typically and most strongly expressed within glial progenitor cells, similarly for oligodendrocyte lineage, neural lineage, and glial lineage, astrocytes, and mesenchymal cells. The cells in gray, actually, um, it's not that they're not classified, it's just that they're kind of in between and they represent. Um, really, I think, uh, something that Evan was talking about at the beginning, which is a certain degree of plasticity and a certain degree of differentiation. And so the cells are moving from a, at least this data, this diffusion plot suggests that they're transiting from a progenitor state to a more differentiated state. When we compare or overlay on top of that plot, the cells that were enriched in restricted media for seven days Um, we can appreciate that quite in fact um, those cells were at the apex of the uh, pyramid, uh, suggesting that they are in fact an enrichment of progenitor cells. And a progenitor cell from a biological correlate is most likely a stem cell. And panel E uh, really shows that um, multiple cell types will match different TCGA signatures. So it doesn't mean because you're a a neural cell that you will only be the proneural signature. It is most commonly, but you can also express uh, classical type of, uh, for example, uh, TCGA features. And so the cellular heterogeneity spans all TCGA subgroups. Looking a little bit deeper into these um, cells, uh, we wanted to understand which cells were actually the cells that we should be targeting with respect to uh, drug uh, development or therapeutics development. The dogma in the field uh, at the time uh, was that the stem cells are a chemo and radio resistant cell population that is very, very slowly dividing. uh, And for that reason is resistant to treatments, but will somehow repopulate the tumor after treatments. And so here we thought we had a good look uh, from essentially fresh cancer analysis at which cells were dividing and which cells weren't. And when if you look at figure A, you can appreciate that against conventional uh, thought, the cells that are dividing in red are actually the cells that are the most progenitor or stem-like, and the cells that are the most differentiated actually very rarely divide. And I won't take you through all these images, but I want to point out a couple different things. Um, One of the very interesting things for for people who are interested in immune or immune modulating therapies for glioma, um, CD24 is an excellent marker of neuronal um, uh, neurons, essentially neuronal cancer cells. And you can appreciate those cells do not express HLA. uh, And that's consistent across every patient and is actually consistent with uh, normal neural stem cells. And the last point I want to make uh, regarding cell division in these is we not only use cell cycle signatures, uh, but this I'm not showing you the data, but we've also um, shown similar data using, you know, KI-67 as a marker of of immune cells. But in a more um, elaborate way, we used uh, mass cytometry to do the same thing. And basically, if you look at panel F, it's a little bit of a difficult uh, pie chart. A lot of people (laughs) seem to have a hard time understanding it and it's been very difficult to actually depict graphically, but essentially, if these are all the cells within the tumor that were analyzed 42,000, almost 43,000 cells, the population of cells that are actually progenitor cells represents a small fraction. And yet, when you look at the cells that are cycling, which are 840 cells out of the 43,000, almost all of those cells are progenitor cells. So interestingly enough, um, the field has been largely focused on, at least in the past, Uh, developing therapies for the most rapidly proliferating cells, thinking that those were actually the differentiated cells, our data seems to suggest that it's actually a different population and probably the progenitor population that is uh, populating the cancer, at least uh, pre-treatment. Trying to understand origin more and how things develop, uh, we used RNA velocity uh, as a technique to try to understand uh, which cell gives rise to another RNA velocity is essentially a, a computational approach using um, a splicing uh, information to understand how one cell gives rise to another cell. And uh, and that's what was used here. Uh, we're showing um, basically, uh, the these are not stem cells, these are just the entire uh, cellular population of each tumor. And this is, uh, the cells are color coded with a roadmap because it's visually uh, more straightforward to appreciate it like that. Um, this is a, uh, a UMAP, uh, UMAP representation, yes. And so the colors in black are the cells that score with the highest progenitor score. Uh, green and red are the glial differentiated mesenchymal and astro uh, site cancer cells. These are the oligolineage cancer cells, and these are the neuronal lineage cancer cells. And the gray, as you diffuse down to a lighter, almost approaching uh, light gray, are cells that have, they're not. And categorized as differentiated cells, but they are definitely losing their um, their program for a stem-like state. And when we look at that and pl- apply velocity techniques, we can appreciate that for every single patient's tumor. And this is very, very small here, I'm, I'm realizing now, um, but the arrows basically point towards flow. So where the arrows emanate from, that is typically the cell from that, w- that gave rise to the, the cell that's downstream. And so for each patient, we notice a couple of important things. One, the arrows all seem to originate from the cells that are the most black, giving rise to cells that are less black, more gray, and then towards the final colors of differentiation, here is a very good example of that. And that holds for every patient, suggesting that the cancers are derived from progenitor like cells, and very importantly, we never see arrows going between lineage, meaning A neuronal differentiated cell never has arrows going towards an oligolineage cell or to a mesenchymal astrocytic type cell. I'm suggesting that really patterns of normal neural development or multi uh, potency uh, uh, continue to exist within the cancer. Trying to understand or link function to this computational data I mentioned earlier that uh, a classical way from a treatment perspective of thinking about stem cells was that they were the most chemo and radio resistant cells and so we wanted to test that and so we c- it's impossible really to grow differentiated cancer cells in a culture dish but we can grow as we, sh- we showed earlier uh, stem cells in in, 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 in enriched media um, and you can keep these cells going for many many generations or passages in restricted media Um, Our analysis of that approach has shown that the cells will very, very quickly drift to something different. Even within seven days, we can see shifts in the progenitor cell uh, profiles using this type of single cell transcriptomic analysis. Um, But we wanted to do the best we could with what is possible to model in vitro. And so basically, um, with very early passage, meaning first or second passage, we used our transcriptomic analysis to separate the glioma stem cell pool in a dish into three groups. One were, was a group that expressed markers of just the most apical or early primordial stem cells. The others were uh, cells that expressed astromezenchomal markers, meaning going along the glial lineage. And the third was along the neuronal lineage. And we had antibodies that allow us to detect um, these specific markers at the cell surface and using cytometry separate them into three types. And when we applied the standard chemotherapy uh, that patients would receive for this disease, temozolomide, to these patients, we realized that um, indeed the most apical stem cell are the stem cells that are the most resistant to temozolomide therapy. And that's really this orange color here going from one all the way up to 200 micromolar, which is beyond what a patient would receive. Essentially true, yes, temozolomide resistant. On the other hand, Um, glial or even neural, although less so for the neural cells, um, do show some degree of sensitivity. Neuronal cells, though, uh, are much more similar to progenitor um, stem cells than astroglial are, that's for sure. Um, And so there is heterogeneity to drug sensitivity, even within the stem cell pool. And so here for the first time, We're really being able to take stem cells or progenitor cells within a seven day culture and show that they actually have different sensitivities and that they can be sorted in different clusters, essentially demonstrating a certain degree of either plasticity or heterogeneity or at least a certain degree of differentiation um, within this population. If we take those clustered uh, enriched stem cells and separate them into their progenitor neuronal or, or glial astrocytic populations and implant them into animals, um, this is all done within 24 to 36 hours after removal from a patient, we notice a couple different things. Uh, the first is that the progenitor cells, and this is just uh, IVIS imaging, the progenitor cells at six weeks, eight, 10, and 12 weeks always give rise to a tumor. And these tumors are much more lethal as compared to neuronal lineage stem cells and astrocytic lineage stem cells. The neuronal lineage stem cells give rise to tumors, but over a delayed time course, and the animals die much later. On the other hand, astrocytic uh, progenitor cells or astrocytic stem cells don't necessarily always engraft. Here we have a 25% engraftment rate and the patients, uh, the animals live much, much longer. Panel D is basically this experiment here, except we've analyzed the the tumors uh, using markers of each of the different cell types. So um, an animal implanted with progenitor stem cells will give rise to tumors that express progenitor stem cells. So this is MASH as a marker, or ASCL1. It will give rise to neuronal cancer cells, and they will give rise to CD44 positive or glial cancer cells. Neuronal progenitor cells will give rise to MASH or standard progenitor cells, demonstrating some plasticity, meaning going in a retrograde fashion. They'll give rise to neuronal cancer cells and occasionally can even give rise to a CD44 positive cancer cell or glial lineage, suggesting, again, there is plasticity within the stem cell pool. Astrocytic or mesenchymal progenitor cells will give rise to tumors that are expressing markers of apical progenitors. They will give rise to cells expressing markers of the glial lineage, but we did not find any cells that were giving rise to any cells indicative of the neuronal lineage, suggesting that maybe there's a little bit less plasticity in that pool that we had captured. And so what can we do with this? Um, we, we understand that there are progenitor cells within these cancers, and these progenitor cells are probably the, the computational correlate of a uh, glioma stem cell. That These cells give rise to uh, three lineages, neural developmental lineages within the cancer, neuronal, astrocytic, and oligodendrocytic. And we know that the progenitor cells are the most rapidly dividing and yet um, the least sensitive to temozolomide radiothera- and radiotherapy. So what can we do to target these cells? We basically did a gene enrichment analysis comparing the progenitor cells to the most apical progenitor cells to the most differentiated uh, astromosenchymal cells. And we looked for what's different between them. And what we identified was uh, a whole bunch of different things. And some of the, uh, the markers that we identified were are well known in the stem cell field like EZH2, Um, And and we we focused on our number one hit was actually uh, a transcription factor within the E2F family, E2F4 in particular, which is known to be important in uh, stem cells and different types of cancers, particularly colorectal. It's also known to be important in normal neural stem cell development. There is an available um, inhibitor of this uh, E2F4 called HLM. And so we used that and tested it in our um, stem cell cultures that had been sorted uh, along lineage and hierarchy. And so we see that here after an in vitro treatment, the progenitors cells are actually the most uh, sensitive to this treatment in comparison to cells that have differentiated, they're still progenitor cells because they're growing in addition restricted media, um, but they've already skewed to the neuronal lineage or the astromezenkymal lineage and we can see the differential sensitivities here. And when we implanted those um, tumors that had been pre-treated into animals, we can appreciate that um, the cells that have been treated with HLM at 20 micromolar uh, for, I think this was, three or four days prior to implantation, um, rarely gave rise to tumors. Um, And when they did uh, the overall survival of the animal was much longer than the the animals that uh, were not treated. Suggesting that, um, yes, there are different transcriptomic signatures, even within the progenitor or stem cell pool of patients. And these can be differentially targeted based on um, the transcriptome of those uh, cells. And so in summary, I think what we've been able to show here is that IDH wild type glioblastoma um, develops along uh, patterns or programs that are very similar to the development, uh, to the, to the development of the human brain. Um, there are progenitor cells or cancer stem cells that give rise to three, actually four cell types, meaning oligodendrocytes, cancer cells, uh, astrocytic, mesenchymal, and neuronal-like cancer cells. Most importantly, we've shown that these progenitor cells are the main population of dividing cells within the cancer. They have different degrees of stemness within them and that the population probably does exhibit a certain degree of plasticity as you move towards uh, one lineage versus another and that these uh, progenitor cells can be targeted um, uh, precisely using this type of information. And so I would like to just acknowledge um, the, 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 the folks in my lab who've done uh, this work, Charles Couturier has been the main driver of the study, uh, Shamani Ayaduri performed uh, a tremendous amount of work in the study as well, including the mass cytometry analysis, um, and other members of the lab who did uh, the majority of the functional work. Uh, Yanis Ragusis's lab was responsible for the actual sequencing, and the Bork lab uh, performed some of the computational analysis. Um, our funders, Canadian Cancer Society, Cancer Research Society, um, the CIHR, um, the neuro, um, a significant portion of this work was funded by a philanthropy to our uh, brain cancer program. And Charles was supported by a a fellowship from the uh, Quebec uh, Scientific Funding Agency. I'd be happy to take your questions.
0: So this question, Kevin is, I'll just read it as it is, it's a two part question. Have you performed a comparison of single cell profile between primary and recurrent glioblastoma tumors? That's the first question. Uh, Why don't you answer that question and then I'll read the second part. Have you performed a comparison? I
1: can see them as well too. Um, uh, So yes, we have. We've just completed that. Uh, We we compared these uh, 16 patients with eight patients who have been treated with radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Uh, Interestingly, their recurrences were, um, they can be grouped in two different ways. Uh, One population of patients, four of them had recurrences within the first year after treatment, and the second population had recurrences after one year, uh, some at three, five, and even seven years. Um, And so we're actually just about to submit that work, but I can give you the upshot, which is that um, recurrent tumors, whether they're early recurrences or late recurrences, um, all express progenitor cells the progenitor cells remain, the highly dividing population of cells, and all three lineages are represented in those tumors. Uh, So from the cell type perspective, uh, recurrent glioblastoma looks very, very much like de novo glioblastoma. Okay, and then the second
0: question from the same questioner is, uh, have you studied resistance to uh, TMZ CCNU in different cell lineages? the only pharmacologic combination known to be effective uh, for MGMT-methylated patients.
1: Right. We have not studied CCNU, only temozolomide. We did appreciate, uh, keeping in mind that we're talking about um, stem cells only, not the differentiated cells, because that's really all we can culture with any, uh, you know, certain degree of certainty. But if you were to separate glioma stem cells into their different lineages, and that does exist as you move down the differentiation scale, um, neuronal uh, cells, neuronal uh, stem cells have a different sensitivity to temozolomide than the glial. Uh, stem cells, which are different than the actual more primordial cells. But no, we have not used uh, CCNU. In Canada, um, CCNU, lomustine, is really only used in uh, the recurrent disease. But in that context, it's a very, very important question. We wouldn't put them together normally uh, to treat our patients, but certainly sequentially, absolutely. It's an interesting experiment.
0: Okay. Another question is, have you identified any risk factors through your work?
1: For the development of the disease? No, unfortunately. We we have been, you know, based on the data that suggests um, that the progenitor cells are the, the rapidly dividing cells and, you know, basically supporting what everyone always thought about this disease that we need to be targeting the stem cells. We've really been focusing on that population and trying to identify the hierarchically most early or primordial stem cell, and that's where we've been focused. Have we identified driver events that are particular to those? Actually, uh, so far, no. Uh, so uh, we have not really identified risk factors.
0: Okay. The next question, first compliments you on, on an outstanding talk, and we all agree. And uh, then proceeds and says, it, it looked like the only deletion among the glioblastoma samples was in the CDK N2A region. The deletion was in most glioblastoma samples. Were there other deletions, and what is special about this deletion?
1: Yeah, um, I, I won't share my screen again. But yes, uh, that was that one was common. Um, we did find other deletions. Uh, certainly, uh, every clone has other deletions beyond that one. And we've gone on to do single cell DNA sequencing of these samples as well uh, as a more um, accurate, although it turns out that this RNA technique is quite good as well. Uh, But uh, yes, there are multiple other uh, deletions uh, on different chromosomes and different segments of chromosomes in every patient and in every clone of every patient. Um, Has there been anything particular about these these deletions? Uh, We haven't studied that from the functional perspective yet.
0: I may ask just one while we're waiting. Um, does, does your technique, you, you had commented on uh, clonality and the ability early on as one of the drivers looking at the polyclonal nature even within a given tumor. And I'm just wondering, does your, does your single cell technique as you've now started doing it allow you to continue to look at clonal relationships between various kinds of cells?
1: Yeah, and, and that, that's actually beyond the question of the recurrent glioblastoma you know post-treatment responses and evolution of the disease that's one of our focuses and so we were asking the question do you do certain driver events uh, that trigger a certain amount of clonality also trigger the um, uh, representation of that cell type within the cancer meaning we can under we can with the single cell techniques identify which cell types are the most represented and not only which cell type, but which clone those cell types belong to. And that analysis is being done now, but I can tell you that it looks like certain clones have much more progenitors and much more rapidly dividing progenitors than other clones. So yes, I do think clonality is something in glioblastoma that develops very, very early. It's not that it develops late as a part of differentiation the clonality develops within the progenitors and there are about 3 to 4 or in some patients two clones of progenitors and they do not behave the same way and so our single cell dna analysis with our single cell dna analysis we're trying to pick apart what are the driver events that drive let's say the the fitness or the maintenance of certain uh, progenitor or stem cells over others but yes we do think that clonality plays a role in the development of heterogeneity, we also think, think that clonality plays a role in the um, nature of the cancer that evolves with time.
0: How would you connect your work to the paper of Korber et al. showing that driver and main clonal events occurring two to seven years before the MRI shows a tumor? Are one P10 deletions, two, CDKN2A deletions, and three EGFR amplifications?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll, I, I don't want to say too much about that. Uh, here's what I'll say. Um, I'm not exactly sure. And we've done a lot of work on this, that um, the cancer actually develops within the tumor mass. That's one. So there's a, there's a, there's a nature paper suggesting that the actual cancer develops at another site within progenitor cells. Uh, in essentially um, neural uh, neurogenic niches within the brain, in that study they look particularly at the subventricular zone, where um, there may or may not be in an adult brain progenitor cells. Um, so the work you're referring to here is 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 a different type of analysis, um, and I so I don't know. Uh, I would say that uh, I think that that is an area meaning finding the cell of origin and what type of changes it has. Uh, is probably one of the most important things that we we have to figure out in this field. Um, We are looking at that. We've looked at that. I can tell you that those cells do have chromosome 10 deletions, almost always. They have chromosome 7 amplifications, almost always. Um, Whether that's important for EGFR or not, I don't know, but certainly a chromosome 7 amplification. And I'm not sure when those cells arose, but I I do think that that study... um, in nature is probably right in the sense that uh, the cancer may not be originating within the mass that you see on on imaging, but actually multiple centimeters away.
0: The next question is a a fairly basic question, just asking why has it taken so long or what's been the technical hurdle to doing single cell RNA-seq analysis of, of brain tumors until just recently?
1: Uh, well, as, a, t- as a, a development of the technology, I don't I don't really know the answer. I'm not a, a, a genomicist uh, by training, and I'm certainly not in these nanofabrication uh, approaches. But I, I do think that that probably has something to do with it. It's just the nature of the high-throughput way of doing it, of the beads, with all of the machinery you need to actually create the cDNA and keeping it separate, and then passing it through the nanotubes. Um, and the expense, you know, at the beginning it was quite expensive. It still is. Uh, but I, I'm probably not the right person to answer, answer that question. Sorry.
0: The next, uh, the next questioner is, is giving you your next experiment to perform. Uh, have you considered reprogramming differentiated resistant cancer cells to their progenitor state, less proliferative state, as a way to sensitize resistant cancer cells to current therapies?
1: I think um, our data, I think it's really important to recognize what the word progenitor state means. This is not a binary situation. Um, Progenitor cells are dynamic. Um, They can be quiescent or they can be dividing. They can be very, very early progenitor-like or they can differentiate along a lineage to a certain degree, but probably still have the capacity to differentiate back to an earlier primordial state Um, So I don't think that's a fixed pool. I think it's a dynamic pool. Um, And within that pool, the progenitor pool, there are cells that are rapidly dividing. And so the notion that um, the uh, resistant cells within the tumor are the differentiated cells, I I think our work suggests that um, maybe that's not the case. The, the The resistant cells are really the progenitor cells, and those cells are the most rapidly dividing at least for the majority of the cells that we can capture within a tumor mass using these approaches. Um, so the rationale of wanting to take a differentiated cell and you know convert it back to a progenitor state might not be a good idea because those progenitor cells are the ones that are dividing quickly. And those are the ones that are the least sensitive to any sort of treatment we have. So I would kind of maybe make, a, think about a, a little bit of a different model, uh, maybe, differentiation is a good thing to have. On the other hand, uh, there are certain type of differentiation and certainly differentiated neural cells are better than differentiated glial cells from the patient perspective. On the other hand, reprogramming a cell back to its earliest progenitor state, meaning the most most like a normal neural stem cell, yeah, that would be a tremendous thing to achieve, meaning a pre-cancerous state. Um, I don't think we know enough about those cells yet. Um, We're gonna learn, I'm sure. Uh, It's just a question of capturing them. Uh, Since these cells may be in areas of the brain that are not necessarily um, appearing normal or, excuse me, abnormal on an MRI, and they are distant from the, you know, the goal of surgery, which is to remove the the cancer mass, they're very, very hard to come by. And when you do find them, they're very, very few and far between. So capturing a lot of them to really characterize them well is a challenge, but I think we'll get there.
0: Okay. The next question comes from uh, Tara Gasterland. The RNA velocity analysis looks at gene expression in a new way. Could you say more about how velocity is determined and then overlaid on the graphics you presented?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So basically uh for the, the graphic, it's each cell has been um labeled uh or 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 or, or Uh, categorized as either being a progenitor cell or a differentiated neuronal or astrocytic or oligodendrocytic cancer cell according to its match to the fetal roadmap and the cells that are in gray are the cells that are somewhere in between meaning somewhere along the differentiation hierarchy so that's how the the graphical layout is the arrows are basically from calculating intron exon splicing rates Uh, and this has to do with cell division and as you move from one cell type to another and then the arrow is literally going from one cell to the cell that's most close to it. So, so that's how it's done. So, velocity is really the flow of splicing, as opposed to the gene expression, which is the actual signature of each cell. So it's kind of like a combination of the two. And um, it's a, you know, without having naming different cell types, you really don't understand what one what, what, how one cell is giving rise to another type of cell. The, the, the technique was actually first used, in, interestingly, in, the, in, in a Nature paper uh, using it. So it's called valocyto, and they actually looked at a developing brain, the fetal developing brain, and you, you understood what development actually looked like, how you went from a normal neural stem cell to those uh, three different lineages. And it worked quite well in this cancer. It doesn't work as well in cancer as it does in a normal tissue, simply because of the, chromo- the, the nature of cancer and the chromosomal changes that occur. They're difficult to control for. Uh, But yes, it, it does work well when you understand the development of the organ.
0: The next question is, given that GBM has a higher incidence and worse outcome in males compared to females, have you included sex as a variable in your study? And did you see a difference in progenitor cancer cells in male versus female tumors?
1: We have not looked at that. Uh, our our numbers are still small. Uh, even to date, we've sequenced, I think, 28 different tumors. Um, and so uh, our numbers would be, you know, we wouldn't have enough power to actually understand that. So far, though, um, when you look at, uh, it goes back to one of the earliest graphs I showed, when you compare one patient's cancer to another, they never cluster together. And that's simply in the, owing to the, the nature of the cancer and how they They are derived by different chromosomal events. And so comparing one patient's progenitors to another uh, can be done to a certain degree, but they will have a pro all have a program that looks like a progenitor cell, but then what will separate them are the actual genomic aberrations that underlie the cancer, the oncogenic driving events. And so, yeah, they all have a seven amplification and a 10 deletion, but everything else becomes different. And so, um, So that that would be a hard question to address. But from a superficial perspective of just thinking back to what all those progenitors look like, uh, we have not seen any glaring differences between them. Okay,
0: I think we've come to the end of the questions and also the end of the hour. We're ending almost perfectly on time. And uh, with that, I'd love to thank you, Kevin, for uh, beaming in from from Quebec. And thanks a lot, everybody.
1: Bye-bye.